ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you so much for joining us in this latest episode of Chasing the Takeaway um, video interviews uh, with an expert on a topical concern for the British Army and Defence. Obviously, these reflect the views of the individuals on this call as to experts and academics discussing a particular topic, not that of the British Army or Minister of Defence. And today we're discussing Lebanon. Why? Lebanon is often said to be a microcosm of a lot of developments in the Middle East, socially, religiously, security-wise, and shifting geopolitical dynamics. But it's also a very important country. Britain has been pursuing um, closer relations with Lebanon. We have been helping Lebanese army to secure the Syria border and a cooperation also so levels in education as well as security as well as governance have been increasing so what happens in Lebanon matters for us and, and for the wider region and today we are thrilled to have Lina Khatib who is the Middle East and North Africa director programs director at the Chatham House also a co-founder of the World Metal Congress that brings all the fans of heavy metal community to the UK um, to discuss a country that she's got a long history of working, observing on. Um, Lina, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm just going to ask, obviously, the first question at the very obvious level, which is in the news a lot, that is the economic conditions in the country. We have seen some disturbing reports and images about um, banks shutting down, limiting money controls, um, as well as even putting metal curtains in front of their ATMs and et cetera. Um, what are the current economic conditions in the country and how did we end up here? Well, first of all, thank you so much for hosting me on this series. It's a pleasure to do this, although sadly, not much of a pleasure in terms of looking at the situation in Lebanon right now. It's not something that inspires optimism, I'm afraid. Not in the short term, not in the medium term, perhaps in the long term, but maybe we can talk about that later. You started your uh, question with uh, highlighting, I think, the issue that is concerning the Lebanese population the most, which is how are they going to make a living in the current situation? Uh, according to the Lebanese government itself, 75% of Lebanese citizens are now below the poverty line. This is the worst financial crisis in the history of modern Lebanon. Even during the Lebanese civil war, the economy was not as bad as this. I mean, the year 2020 already started with uh, debt to GDP levels being more than 150%, and that is uh, uh, growing as a, as a proportion and the deterioration of the Lebanese currency uh, is one of the largest deteriorations uh, that are happening right now in the world. I would say the largest, uh, third largest loss um, in currency value. Uh, and again, these things are unprecedented. Yes, the currency had already deteriorated significantly since um, the days of the war, but for the past um, two decades or so, the Lebanese currency, uh, actually even more than that, uh, I would say over two decades, the Lebanese currency had a peg vis-a-vis uh, -vis the dollar, which uh, gave people in Lebanon a false sense of security because they felt that um, no matter what, one dollar uh, is 1,500 Lebanese liras. And, and they built their economic plans, including the government's own economic plans on that basis. Um, however, we're now realizing that that peg was artificial because of the uh, very flawed economic model that uh, the government has been using, which is basically to uh, give very high interest rates to banks um, who were in turn uh, using depositors' money uh, to uh, uh, basically make a profit 
while actually siphoning off state resources. And coupled with that, you have rampant corruption in the country. Uh, politicians who happen to also be economic elites controlling the country's resources and very often stealing the country's resources. Uh, foreign aid uh, flowing into Lebanon has very often ended up in the pockets of, of these politicians. Um, of course, you have, uh, in addition, uh, the crisis in Syria next door, obviously impacting the economy in Lebanon negatively because of huge flows of refugees coming into Lebanon, uh, also adding a strain on its economy. Uh, Gulf countries feeling that Lebanon is no longer a good place to invest their money in and therefore reducing the amount of money that they were uh, investing uh, in Lebanon. All these factors put together meant that the economy in Lebanon is now at a really, really critical uh, state. And therefore, Lebanon is feeling that it has no choice but to seek uh, support from uh, the IMF. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is, uh, a while ago, there was a conference held uh, called the Seder Conference that was meant to bring in uh, foreign donor money into Lebanon. But that conference said that the Lebanese government needs to engage in serious uh, reforms before that money can flow in. And those reforms were never implemented. So there is a danger that now with the IMF uh, entering negotiations with Lebanon on potential support, that IMF conditions for reform might be even uh, str stricter than those um, uh, that Sadr had asked for. And the Sadr ones were not implemented. So what are the chances of the IMF uh, potential reforms being implemented um, in the near future? So all this to say is, the situation is quite bad and the solution is very complicated and um, um, you know it remains to be seen whether the powers that be will eventually sacrifice some of their own personal gains for the sake of rescuing Lebanon's economy. Yeah and, and Nina I think that last comment already hints at towards the question of governance because Lebanon is a very unique country right it's a Historically, it had two colonial legacies built on it, the Ottoman and then the French, as well as the post-Civil War order that shapes its current um, vote sharing, as well as who's going to be the president, who's going to be the prime minister, which MP you can vote in, um, whom you can marry, and family law and political law. So um, it, there's been a lot of protests that we have observed in Lebanon last one or two years, um, with discontent towards the current political elite and all these kind of figures that have been there for a very long time. Are we seeing a wider acknowledgement in Lebanon of the fact that this kind of post-war um, Lebanon is not really working? There needs to be a new social and political contract um, that might cut across the sectarian lines um, and actually talk about citizenship and good governance, or are we actually set to see more fragmentation and people closing the doors in those identities and actually entrenching their positions economically, socially, and religiously. Um, what you're saying is very important because while we now may be looking at headlines about the Lebanese uh, economy, the economic deterioration is a symptom. It's not the problem. It's the symptom of a larger problem, which is the political system in Lebanon and this very flawed social contract in which sect leaders become political leaders, use their power to become economic elites, and as I said, siphon off power, but at the same time, 
by doing this, they are uh, cultivating patron-client relationships with their constituents. So Lebanese people, according to these leaders, fall under sectarian categories, not under the category of citizen, regardless of sectarian uh, background. Uh, so in a way, this uh, divide and rule uh, approach to dealing with citizens, this flawed social contract, helped keep the elites in power for decades. I personally refer to it as modern feudalism. Basically, we have a situation in which a country that used to be feudal, obviously before it became a republic, had these relationships in a way formalized because the Lebanese political system is a system about sharing power according to uh, someone's sectarian background. There are allocations for uh, the different sects in parliament, in the cabinet, etc. This has entrenched division. So this is the situation from the top. From below, if you look at what's been happening in Lebanon since October 2019, we are seeing something refreshing, which is growing awareness among citizens that their uh, economic destitution is the result of this very flawed political system. And that's why uh, people took to the streets in Lebanon in October 2019 and continue to do so. And people are demanding not just economic rights, they are also demanding a fundamental change to the political system. They want it to uh, not be a sectarian system anymore, but to represent everyone equally. But of course, the elites find this an existential threat because it is the political system that gives them access to power and resources. So they're not going to give up on it anytime soon. In my own view, the economic situation was partly used by the powers that be as a method of punishment uh, for the people who took the streets in Lebanon because coercion did not work. And attempts at, uh, in a way, using uh, sectarian uh, passions to rally people also did not quite work because the protests in Lebanon that have been happening since October, despite their lessening numbers on the streets today, have seen participation from across uh, Lebanon's geographic areas and sects. And this obviously is something very threatening for the system. Mm -hmm. So as I said, they tried coercion, it did not deter people. They tried to rally sectarian kind of uh, loyalties, it did not quite work. One thing that did to a degree unfortunately work is uh, economic destitution. So one of the things that Lebanon witnessed is different banks, for example, imposing different informal capital controls, uh, denying people access to their own money at, uh, at these different banks, with each bank improvising basically different rules. This created a sense of uncertainty and anxiety uh, among citizens. And sadly, you know, regardless of the actual method used, ultimately, this is something that regimes all over the Middle East have been using which is when faced with um, political challenges from the street, uh, you try as the ruler to get people to just pay attention to immediate livelihood issues um, and, and diverting their attention away from the larger issues of political re reform. So there is hope because this awareness that citizens are displaying, especially the younger generation, is very important. But under the current uh, circumstances, it is difficult to see how these protests are going to be able to overcome uh, a very shrewd uh, status quo.
Yeah, and one particular group, you know, that plays a huge role, and in fact, the increasing role in Lebanon since the last elections, we've tangibly seen that, is Hezbollah. And it's been amazing to observe how they have sought to maximize the current pandemic, even though Lebanon still has, we don't necessarily know the size of the pandemic um, at the infection rates in Lebanon because of the lower testing capabilities. But Hezbollah has been really proactive, pulling ventilators from other hospitals, setting up new clinics, providing ambulances, and a lot of pictures that goes with it, but they've also been clearly pushing for takeover of some of the key financial institutions they didn't necessarily have a direct influence on, and politically they seem to be um, a lot more aggressive in, against the protests and, and, and in their own coalition in the parliament, etc. And what are the current kind of trajectories that you can see for Hezbollah in Lebanon? Obviously, they lost money coming from Iran lately. Um, clearly, they have discontent, and Germany has recently listed them, and there is an increasing trend in, within Europe to curb the money that they're able to gather in illicit trade and other indirect routes. Um, so do you see the economic conditions galvanizing them to assert themselves more to seize more of Lebanon or shrink some of their ambitions? Or are we going to see a much more dominant Hezbollah from now on in the country? Well, obviously, when I talked about the political and economic elites in the country, I was talking about all the political leaders who are in power, whether in formal positions of power or informal positions of power. Hezbollah happens to be the most prominent and most powerful uh, military and political actor in the country, and it exerts this power through formal channels as well as informal channels. Um, with the crisis that has uh, struck Lebanon, uh, uh, you know, economically, Hezbollah has tried to uh, utilize it to its own benefit by saying to its constituents uh, that it will be the provider regardless um, of the state. Because one of the things that Hezbollah uses again and again uh, to justify its possession of weapons and its activities is to say that the Lebanese state is weak and cannot deliver to its citizens, and therefore Hezbollah's own institutions are going to fill that gap. Uh, so the economy was, in a way, utilized like that. But at the same time, the COVID-19 crisis was similarly, as you said, uh, used by Hezbollah. Uh, it said uh, the Lebanese government uh, or state does not have enough capacity, so Hezbollah is volunteering to deploy its own resources to help um, people with testing, ambulances, ventilators, etc. The irony, of course, is that uh, some of these resources that Hezbollah is kind of uh, saying to people is, is provided by the group uh, is actually acquired from the Lebanese state. Uh, and it's not just about the COVID crisis. Uh, recently, there were reports in the Lebanese media about smuggling activities, uh, goods flowing from uh, Lebanon to Syria, which is not new. However, what's new in this uh, new kind of media attention is that a lot of goods that are subsidized by the Lebanese state, like wheat and fuel, are basically being smuggled by Hezbollah to Syria, where obviously it is involved in uh, activities to support the Assad regime. So what we're seeing here is Hezbollah actually extracting resources that are meant to be for the Lebanese people and either using them in its military campaign next door 
or to uh, display this image of, uh, you know, uh, support for uh, the Lebanese people that actually is meant to just polish its own image and increase its authority in the country. So, yeah, Hezbollah is obviously using the crisis as an opportunity. But at the same time, we have to ask, why is it acquiring these state resources like never before? In the past, it didn't used to go so far. And that's because in the past, it had adequate funding from Iran. Um, of course, it also generated and still does its own money through smuggling and all kinds of other activities, but the funding from Iran is crucial. And with Iran facing more and more sanctions from the United States, uh, it's becoming uh, more difficult for Hezbollah to imagine uh, being reliant on Iranian funding um, for the foreseeable future um, in, the, in the same way as it used to. And therefore, we can say that perhaps uh, this display of power by Hezbollah is also an attempt at masking uh, increasing vulnerability for the group. I wouldn't go as far as say uh, Hezbollah is already on a fast decline, and that's largely because its um, opponents in Lebanon remain very weak and cannot really stand up to Hezbollah, even with its weakened uh, financial capacity they don't really have the same external uh, support, for example, that Hezbollah enjoys uh, from Iran. They don't have the military clout that Hezbollah does. They don't rally their uh, constituents ideologically like Hezbollah still does with large sections of the Shia community. And, and therefore, you know, Hezbollah is, is going to be influential in Lebanon for the foreseeable future, but it is not as invincible as it would like us to think. And Lina, I think your comments have already hinted at them, which is the involvement and impact of regional actors on what happens in Lebanon. Obviously, Iran is one of it, clearly through Hezbollah. Um, Assad regime and Syria has always had an impact on directly on Lebanon. It militarily invaded Lebanon till mid 2000s. Um, and there is also the question of Israel, right? What Israel does militarily in the south, even in Syria, against Hezbollah and against Iranian targets have also implications for Lebanon and you already pointed out the um, unprecedented level of Syrian refugees in the country where it's six million population probably has up to two million or so um, Syrians within it what one every three or one up every four person you see in Lebanon is said to be of Syrian refugee that has actually came into the country um, what are those regional dynamics that are shaping um, the direction of Lebanon at this context, both socially um, and also limiting its chances economically and providing a political breakthrough? Well, Lebanon, unfortunately, has in its modern history always been a playground for external powers. Uh, lots of external actors remain uh, interested in Lebanon because of its strategic uh, location, etc. But we've seen recently, for example, Gulf countries significantly roll back uh, their involvement in Lebanon. So for example, let's say 10 years ago, one could count on Saudi Arabia as a significant supporter of the future movement political party in Lebanon that is uh, led by former Prime Minister Saad Hariri and before that his, his father, um, uh, Rafiq Hariri. Now that uh, uh, support from Saudi Arabia has lessened, not just because Saudi Arabia is facing an oil pr uh, price drop and uh, domestic issues and uh, regional issues like the war in Yemen that are more of an immediate concern, but also because uh, the allies for Saudi Arabia inside Lebanon, like uh, the Future Movement, 
proved not to be very effective in the face of uh, Hezbollah. So the Gulf countries no longer see Lebanon as, as a great investment. This opened up uh, the uh, arena wide open for the Assad regime to try to reclaim um, a political role in Lebanon indirectly. So while Syria no longer occupies Lebanon militarily and hasn't done so um, since 2005, uh, the current uh, cabinet in Lebanon is very much dominated by uh, Hezbollah and its allies, who obviously are uh, allies of the Assad regime. Um, so Iran looms large uh, in Lebanon. Uh, the United States is not playing as significant a role as it used to, apart from perhaps trying to uh, maintain uh, links with the uh, economic uh, elites in Lebanon uh, in the banking sector by uh, you know, imposing uh, regulations against money laundering and anti-terrorism financing that Lebanese banks have largely been very compliant uh, with because they want to maintain uh, this link with the West. Hezbollah actually, despite its uh, resistance to this American influence on the banking system, also does not want Lebanon to become a pariah state and lose all its external uh, funding from uh, Western countries. So you have a bit of a dance. It's not black and white. On the one hand, Hezbollah is being uh, sanctioned uh, in different places uh, outside, like most recently in Germany, even here in the UK. But at the same time, uh, Hezbollah cannot afford for Lebanon to become like Iran. Um, and so you have uh, a situation in which the old dynamic of Iran versus Saudi Arabia and the US is no longer uh, applicable uh, in Lebanon. Um, but at the same time, Lebanon's fate is intimately tied to what happens to Syria next door. And ultimately, the United States seems to be approaching the Syrian uh, war through the prism of Iran, the maximum pressure strategy that the United States is pursuing uh, towards Iran definitely includes dynamics in Syria. And Lebanon will be, in a way, a side effect of that rather than Lebanon being you know, a central issue in itself. So in a way, uh, sadly, the uh, situation in Lebanon means that the country doesn't have as much agency when it comes to regional dynamics. It will be impacted by what happens outside. And Lina, that obviously um, um, raises questions for the UK, for European countries, um, in regards to what we can do, right? So um, clearly, this is a country that is facing um, disastrous economic conditions for millions of people. Um, it's facing a huge refugee burden on precedented levels. Um, most countries don't have that. Um, and it's also facing all these extremely complex power dynamics with a um, state-lit, a militant group that dominates economy and politics and, and external actors that we see to be also problematic. What are some key areas do you think the UK or our European allies can focus on? I mean, obviously we have focused on helping the Lebanese army and armed forces, which are respected um, overall in Lebanon and by us to help them to develop their skills, but also protection of the Syria borders. Is that the direction we should focus? Or if the aid money is going to go into other people's pockets, is that the way to go? Or um, what kind of projects or if you like approaches would work or what can we do? Uh, you mentioned the army and that's very important because this is one of the uh, big debates, especially in the United States, whether the US should continue to support the Lebanese army, knowing very well that Hezbollah is more influential than the Lebanese army uh, inside Lebanon. 
But that is precisely why the army needs to be supported. It is perhaps the only state institution that enjoys support and respect uh, from everyone uh, in Lebanon, regardless of their uh, background. And the army has been playing a very significant role in Lebanon encountering uh, jihadist uh, extremism. And uh, therefore, uh, empowering the army is very important because Hezbollah often says that the Lebanese army is too weak to defend Lebanon. So perhaps empowering the army might, uh, in a way, take that excuse a bit from, uh, from Hezbollah. Uh, when it comes to non-army related support, it's very important for aid to continue to flow to Lebanon. However, aid needs to come with conditionality. Uh, one of the problems faced in the past and even till now is that some of the external donors have turned a blind eye to the uh, way political elites have been uh, acquiring uh, state funds, uh, especially foreign aid, uh, to kind of uh, fund their own projects or line their own pockets. Uh, there needs to be uh, measures of transparency that uh, foreign donors need to uh, insist on. Um, and also job creation is going to be a huge issue because now there is growing unemployment in Lebanon, especially after the COVID-19 crisis wrecked the economy even more. Uh, so perhaps initiatives that support the private sector, I would say, um, would be very helpful. And these don't need to necessarily flow through state institutions. They can flow directly uh, to the private sector. Um, but also uh, some of the NGOs that are uh, dealing with refugee issues, um, not all of them, because some of the NGOs are owned by the political elites in Lebanon. So, you know, some due diligence on the actually independent NGOs that are doing serious work. They deserve uh, support because they are helping with the uh, uh, burden of uh, having, as you said, almost two million uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. So definitely these are just some of the things that uh, can be done. Yeah, um, Lina, Lebanon is one of these countries that I've been going regularly a couple of times a year, often for the last 10 years or so. And I'm always dazzled by its complexity, its history, its social fabric, and the legacies of so much of the suffering and bad governance when its people deserve a lot more and a lot better. Um, and you are one of the best people to actually capture all of these in 20 minutes. So thank you so much for providing such an overview of the country and the challenges facing us. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching. And if you want to watch more of these series, you can follow us at www.chaser.org.uk.